0: Hello, this is Allison Carter, Occupational Therapist with the Milestones podcast. This is episode 101, and today I have an interview show for you. Before we get started with the interview, let me remind you that you can support this show by doing a couple different things. One of them is by purchasing CEUs of the show on my website at mymidwesttherapy.com. Not only does that help me out, but you also get the benefit of completing some of your license requirements. Look for the yellow Add to Cart buttons under Specific Episodes. You can also help by doing your online shopping using one of the Amazon links on my website. Finally, become a Patreon member and you will receive additional member-only benefits by joining. You can click the Patreon button on my website or just go to Patreon, patreon.com and search Milestones Podcast. Okay, let's get started with the show. Today, I have Mira Dieters. She is a speech-language pathologist, the owner of Super Speech Solutions, a concierge private practice that provides online speech therapy to Texans. She received her master's degree in speech-language pathology from Our Lady of the Lake University in 2006. Mira has worked in a variety of settings, including hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, inpatient, outpatient, rehabilitation clinics, charter schools, and private practices over the past 14 years. Mira specializes in accent modification and child language disorders with an emphasis on autism. So welcome, Mira. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here
0: kind of just wanted to start off talking about what you do as a speech therapist, uh, speech language pathologist, and um, kind of just describe your your job in general, if you can.
1: Sure. Sure. So first of all, I want to say that speech language pathology and speech therapy are the same thing, because I know sometimes people hear those terms interchangeably. They are interchangeable terms. They mean the exact same thing but one thing i want to highlight is number one what speech therapists do because i think that's not really something that everybody knows but i just want to emphasize that speech therapists actually work from the neck up and so what i mean by that is we can work on speech and language which involves building communication skills but we can also work on things like feeding and swallowing so even with the pediatric population with kids there are lots of kids who get labeled as picky eaters, or I like to call them food explorers. But they may have trouble with their diet because a lot of autistic children in particular um, have difficulty with sensory issues. So, for example, they may not like the way a food, you know, looks or they may, they may not like the way it feels. Um, so, definitely feeding and swallowing is an area that we can also help with. And also lastly i would say the other area that we help with is cognition so in the area of thinking if a child or adult has trouble you know with uh, for example they have a brain injury or stroke or something of that nature like an internal bleed in their brain they have difficulty with memory or, or problem solving or all of those types of skills that's also something else speech therapy can help with too and then the other thing i wanted to mention is the difference between speech and language so i find that a lot of times speech delay and language delay are just terms that are thrown together, but I just want to emphasize that speech and language mean two completely different things. So if someone is talking about speech, it's actually referring to the pronunciation of sounds, or in other words, how you sound when you talk. Are you pronouncing your sounds clearly or do people have trouble understanding you? And then with language, we're actually referring to a couple of different things, but with language, we're really talking about someone's ability to follow directions. So that actually refers to their receptive language. So how well are they able to follow directions? How well are they able to answer questions? How well are they able to understand language? But then there's also expressive language, which means how well someone is able to express themselves using language. So are they able to answer yes, no questions? Or you know, who, what, where, why, when questions? And how do they communicate? Are they using one word? Two words, three words? Do they use a sentence? Are they only using gestures? So I just wanted to explain how those are two different areas that speech therapists work on.
0: Okay and I um, I think thinking about what you're just saying, the language part of it and the cognition I think really go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Would you say um, a lot of times like especially with receptive language I know if I'm working with the child and I'm not sure if they're understanding what I'm saying, if they understand Mm -hmm. the concept of what we're doing or how the language that goes along with it. Um, I feel like a lot of times that really goes together.
1: I agree with what you're saying. They definitely go together. And I think another way that you can actually tie language and cognition together is when we think of processing speed. So oftentimes children who are having trouble with speech and language, and in particular, I would say certainly autistic children, but it could be lots of different types of, you know, children that we all work with as therapists of, you know, speech therapists, but even like I said, occupational therapists, physical therapists. There definitely can be a link in terms of some kids need longer time to process. So what I like to do is uh, I call it kind of the five second rule. So if I've given a direction to a child and, haven't followed it within five seconds. I tried to use that five seconds as my observation time, but let's say they haven't followed it and they seem like they don't really know what to do, then at that point I'll repeat it. And if I need to, I can always use visual cues or show them specifically what I want them to do in order for them to understand what I'm asking.
0: Mm -hmm. I like that five second rule. I know that a lot of the families that we work with too will just Repeat, repeat before they've given the child a chance to maybe process it, like you're saying, or think about what they said, and they've probably missed all the rest of the things that they've said after that first part um, because they're still right. Exactly, Mm -hmm.
1: and I think the other thing that we're looking at too is also trying to keep our language simple. So I would say another good rule of thumb is that if a child is communicating, let's say two words try to keep your directions to three words. So try to only go up one more word than what they're using because otherwise what I find is that children really have a difficult time understanding what you're asking them to do.
0: As far as um, like when when to refer to speech therapy or um, as a parent or as another provider that maybe you have some concerns and you're questioning whether or not speech would be appropriate
1: hmm
0: That's a great question. I love that question. So I
1: think there definitely are some red flags that parents and other professionals can look for. And number one, I want to say, if, a, if as a parent, you feel like your child is having trouble with speech or language, the first person you want to talk to is your pediatrician. They are really good about referring to a speech therapist. But in terms of what signs to look for, I would say there are different ones, certainly, between speech and language. So from a speech perspective, I would say that if you're not able to understand what your child is saying 100% of the time after they're four years old or older, that's definitely a good time to refer to a speech therapist. So speech therapists can work with a child on the pronunciation of their sounds to get them to you know, have their speech sound more clear. So that's definitely a good time to refer. Number two, in the area of language, if a child is not using at least two words by the time they're two years old, definitely that's a milestone we would want to see them meet. And that's also another time to refer to a speech or language. Um, I'm sorry, speech language pathologist or a speech therapist. And certainly if they're at two or, you know, if they're even older than two and they're not using words at all, that would also be. A reason to refer let's say if your child is only using gestures and they're just showing you what they want, rather than using words certainly that goes hand in hand with what i'm saying before that too.
0: What uh, what would you say is the normal amount or a typical amount of how many words would you expect a two year old to be saying. Mm,
1: That's a good question. I would say a couple of hundred. To be honest, I don't completely remember the norm, but it's a couple of hundred. So I would be concerned if a child only had, let's say, about 15, 20 words or, you know, very limited vocabulary. Now, the difference with vocabulary, of course, there can be a difference between how many words the child knows and how many they're using. So if we're talking about their vocabulary should be a couple of hundred by the time they're two. They might not be using all those words, but they should be able to understand a lot of words. And the other thing I wanted to mention is another thing that can be easy to keep in mind as a general rule is that if a child is, let's say, for example, two, they should be using two words at a time. And if they're three, it's three words at a time. So the general idea to keep in mind there is that you can think of how old your child is. That will kind of give you insight as to how many words they should be able to put together
0: at that age. I know a lot of the families that I that I work with in the zero to three um, program, we they have a lot of concerns, and this comes up so often with uh, new referrals to our program, with mm-hmm. they're having speech concerns, is what the parents say. Um, because their child isn't talking and they're they're 12 months old or they're 15 months old Um, and that is i mean that's just such an early age and a hard age to say well they should be having this many words what what would you say about their language or their speak their speech and language at that young age i know that's really young probably for you but
1: It is pretty young, and I think sometimes it's hard to know when exactly do we expect words to start happening. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a little bit of variability, but I would say we would want to see a child using words between 12 to 18 months. I mean, certainly if they're at 18 months and they're not using words, I would definitely be concerned. Before that, I think it's hard to say. I think there's a little bit of variability, but I think one thing that uh, for any parents who are listening they can do Is if they have concerns, I think it's always appropriate for them to get their concerns expressed and to seek out a speech therapist if they think that's something they want to look into at a younger age for a child. But I think another good idea to keep in mind is that parents have a lot of things they can do at home with language. And they can even encourage their child to communicate by putting things out of their reach. So even though that sounds like something very simple, it can be very effective because if I'm a child and everything is right at my reach, I don't have the motivation to communicate. But if my mom or dad or whoever my caregiver is has put something out of my reach to where I have to ask for it, I'm going to be more motivated
0: to communicate. And by communicate, you mean, maybe gestures use you know, words,
1: like words right so use words so for example if i if i'm not able to open the fridge and get milk from the first shelf anymore because it's on the second or third shelf i'm going to have to point and say milk versus before i would have just been able to get it myself so now i actually have to use the word in order to get what i want
0: which um that comes up a lot with the kids that i work with too because you know, parents generally know what their child wants a lot of times, like they mm-hmm. can, they kind of, or if they don't know, maybe right away, they have a few options they go through before they maybe figure it out, um, or if they want to mm-hmm. drink, or if they want to be picked up or, if, you know, whatever, a, a snack or whatever it might be. Um, and so a lot of times the, the parents just naturally, they want to make their child, they want to give their child what they already know they already want. So they just Mm -hmm. give it to them. Um, It takes a lot of kind of practice and, and um, I I think self-control maybe for parents to like, okay, I need to try and have them, I need to wait and not just give it to them and try to have them figure out how to communicate it and maybe show them how to communicate it to me before Mm -hmm. I give it to them.
1: I agree. And I think for parents that can be hard. I think it's also hard because You know, sometimes in all honesty, it just requires more time and more patience. And sometimes that's not the luxury that a parent may have if they're trying to scoot their kids out the door to go somewhere. So I would say that, you know, ideally, sure, as much as you can, we want parents to be doing that. But I'm not I don't want to advocate that they need to be doing that 100 percent of the time if it's not practical to the situation, because we all know life happens. We can't control things sometimes. Do
0: you have any other strategies? For parents to use at home, um, I like that was a really good one to get things started, um, putting things out of reach. Do you have
1: Absolutely, any I would also say that even when children are young,
0: you know, and I know the
1: age we're talking about here is about zero through three, but even for kids who are at the speaking level or not quite at the speaking level, you can definitely offer them two choices as a parent, and you can say, you know, for example, do you want the blue towel or do you want the white towel, and even if they're not at the word level, where they're not able to say the whole word, you can have them point and say the first letter, like B or wa, you know, if it's like blue and white, you can have them say the first letter, like the first sound of the word. They say the whole word, definitely reward them. I think the biggest thing we want kids at that age to understand is if they communicate in however way. You know, they're going to get the the preferred item. They're going to get what they want. So I find that at that age, it's really important to give them that immediate gratification. So to make sure that after they're giving the word or they're pointing and giving the word, you give them what they're asking for right away so that they get the
0: message that,
1: hey, if I communicate, I get it right away. Wow, that's really cool. That's how
0: this exchange works. That is in the ideal situation. I think. What What do you sure. think? Do you have a suggestion for those kids that don't point or or make a sound for a choice?
1: I think you can show them pictures. I mean, there's a whole you know picture picture exchange communication program called PECs, and not to go into a lot of detail here, but I think you can show them pictures and have them point to the picture so that they can at least get what they want, even if they're not up to saying the entire word. Sure, I think pictures, I think visuals can be really helpful. Or show them actually the two different items. If, you know, you're at home, if you're out somewhere, you know, you can always have pictures on your phone. Maybe you can snap pictures of what they like and show them on the phone and then have them, you know, pick that way.
0: Um, And sometimes, I don't know, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as... As they might look at one of the the two choices. And we Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, that's a choice sometimes if we can't get them to do the other gesture on their own.
1: Sure, exactly. Yeah, so just see what they're paying more attention to. So sometimes you may have to give meaning to what you think the child wants, even if they're not communicating it. I agree with that.
0: What about like with mealtime? situations?
1: Well, one of the things that I really like to advocate as a speech therapist is that to make language as functional as you can. So I know ideally in speech therapy at the end of every session, you know, especially in private practice, we talk to parents about what they can do with their child at home. Well, I think what happens a lot of times is that, you know, things can get really busy at home and it can be hard to have, a designated yes practice what you learned in speech therapy time. So I really like to advocate that you can fit language into any situation. So, for example, with mealtime, you know, some of the things I was talking about before can be applied to mealtime. You can definitely have them choose what they want, give them two choices, show them two items and have them pick what they want. You can also have them name what items are there. You know, and again, if this is if you have time and everyone's sitting down, it's a good situation, ideal situation. You can have the name, what's on the table. You can talk about, you know, if you can teach them new words that way. And uh, let's say they're at the one word level, then, you know, they say carrots. You can say more carrots and try to have them repeat
0: the two words together. Let's see. We kind of talked about meal. What about bath time? And do you have any... Any other thoughts on... Bath time is another good one,
1: too. So I think, and you know, similar to what we're talking about with mealtime. With bath time, you can actually do various things, too. You can work on vocabulary such as prepositions. We're going in the bathtub. We're coming out of the bathtub. You can also work on opposites. You know, the bathtub is full. Now it's empty. You know, your the water is hot. Now it's cold. You know, all kinds of opposites. You can also work on verbs. Flashing, playing, Mm -hmm. all those types of things. And again, in bath time, you know, during bath time, you can also give choices, you know, you can ask them which kind of towel they want. Do you want the red towel? Do you want the blue towel? Mm -hmm. So again, you're giving them the option. And again, what I said before is also true. You can also expand on what they're saying. So if child says bubbles, you can say more bubbles, or, you know, do you want more bubbles and try to get them to repeat more bubbles, for example. So, I think, you know, the biggest thing to understand in terms of language is that you can really apply language to any situation that you actually do every day. So even with reading books, even with playing video games, but I mean, they're really, every opportunity can actually lend to language. So I think, you know, a lot of times as a speech therapist, I think you can get boxed into the idea of, oh, I have to give a home program. Where the parents follow X Y Z in terms of what they're doing in therapy, but I think a really creative therapist, or I should say a practical therapist, can actually give applications of what they're working on, and you know, tell the uh, show the parent how it can be used in everyday context. But I don't think parents have a lot of time to work on an extensive speech therapy home program every day. I mean. Typically, there are a lot of things going on at home. It's busy. They might be cooking. They might have other kids. I mean, there's a lot. That's already, you know, sure. Ideally, they have time to do it every day. But I think if you make it practical, it's
0: easier easier for them to achieve. I agree. Totally. If it's part of their just natural routine, it's more likely Mm -hmm. to happen. Um, Exactly. Mm -hmm. For sure. And because, you know, it's something that's also not only functional but meaningful to both the parent and probably the child as well. Because um, it relates to what they do in their regular schedule, their regular day. Um,
1: exactly, and another activity that you can fit language into is also with reading books. You can have the child participate by flipping pages. You can you know, introduce more new vocabulary words in terms of actions. You know, if it's a picture of a child playing, or, you know, they're flying a kite, or there could be all kinds of things happening in the book. I mean, you know, if the kid is a little bit older, you can also use it as a way to see if they understand what's happening in the story if you read it to them. So there are even lots of things you can even do with reading a book, even if they're not at the reading level, there's still a lot of language you can introduce even before reading.
0: Yeah, we try, um, well, a lot of times the speech therapist that I work with um, frequently talks about Giving them all that language, that vocabulary receptively um, Mm -hmm. and building that up, building that up. And and that really helps for the the speech part, the language part where they start talking and saying those words that they've been hearing, probably from books Mm -hmm. or just from you talking as a parent.
1: Exactly. I agree with that. And I think, you know, that's another thing that parents can do is just narrate what they're doing in the kitchen. So even if the child's not directly talking to them, they can talk to the child about what they're doing with meal preparation. You know, like I said, assuming that the time is there or, you know, if that's not a really good time, can take a different time, you know, and it could even be in the car. You can talk about where you're going and what you see You can play a game of I spy, all kinds of stuff.
0: Do you have thoughts on using, like, um, signs or gestures that are, that are maybe like more or all done? Just kind of like the general things that a lot of times we use in this, this age group. Can you talk about? Yeah, I'm a
1: big advocate of using signs. I think those are important, especially like the ones you're talking about. I think a lot of us, you know, talk about the universal ones, like more and all done, certainly are really big ones. You can also introduce other ones. Sometimes I've used other ones like open, for example, because that's also a simple sign to show or eat help. I think there's definitely some basic ones you can introduce to children at a young age that I think can really help decrease their frustration because I find that even with really young kids, even if they're two and under, even two-year-olds, you know, they can get really frustrated with not being able to communicate. So we can just give them an easy way to communicate. I think that's really beneficial, not only for them, but also for their parents and caregivers, because it really decreases the frustration. And a lot of times I find in working with young children over the years is that we see their bad behaviors decrease just because they're able to communicate more and more over time. So I have, you know, occasionally worked with two-year-old boys, and they have just had a lot of trouble with behavior in terms of biting or scratching and hitting, and we truly see that behavior decrease. That behavior happens because it's out of frustration, because they don't have the words to communicate what they want to say, and over time, once they get more words, we do see those behaviors start to back off, because they're able to use words better, which is really great.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Even though it can be still sometimes hard, um, I guess, depending on their, fresh, their fresh um, I don't know, cognitive level or whatever, if they're um, mm-hmm. able to think about using those signs in the moment, because sometimes they're already so mad or upset that they, like, they're not going to come up with, oh, I just need to say, say help or sign help, and then I'll get what I, you know, what I'm looking for. Somebody will understand me, <laughs> but... So sometimes I think
1: in a situation like that, it is going to be difficult to remember to even for the parent to remember to reinforce that for the child to realize that they can use it. But I think it gets better over time. I mean, really, a lot of it is really practice and repetition that comes in handy over time.
0: Do Do you have any advice for people that are new to the field of speech language pathology? I do.
1: So because I've been in the field now 14 years, and honestly, it's gone by so quick. I can't believe it's Wow. I mean, it's really gone by so fast. It's unbelievable. I think it's an amazing field. I think it can be really great to explore all the different options you have. I mean, obviously, there's so many different areas you can specialize in. There are different populations you can work with. Um, the best advice I actually got before I even went to graduate school is actually to work with adults and then transition to working with kids. And I actually really liked that I did it that way because I like that I'm able to work with both populations. And I think it's given me a very unique experience. And I find that a lot of speech therapists don't have the opportunity or don't dive into both you know, both populations. And although they're really different, I'm glad I did that. Um, I think if you go from kids to adults, it's a much harder transition and I can see why I got that advice. So for anyone out there listening, that really came in handy for me. Number two, I think, take your time to figure out what you really like about the field and specialize in. Honestly, you know, even though I've been in the field for such a long time, I only feel like within the past couple of months during the pandemic, I really had time to do more training and realize, now if you ask me what I specialize in, I would say accent modification for adults, child language disorders, as far as kids go. And, you know, specifically I specialize in the area of autism as well. But I would not have been able to tell you that months ago. So I think a lot of people think, oh, I should know this by now. But I don't think there's a real timeline in terms of how do you know what you want to specialize in? I think there are a lot of different great areas about the field. So just take time to explore
0: different areas and really see what you like. Yeah, I, agree. I think it kind of evolves over time, depending on mm-hmm. yeah where you, where you end up working over the years and then how that changes and what you discover that you really have a passion for maybe or interest in.
1: Exactly. And I think it does help to do, you know, specializations and certifications and training. And I think by doing those, you can, you know, realize that you want to go into a certain area of the field or you don't. I think either one can be true.
0: So what could you say then about working with adults and then transitioning to the kids? What, What was it about that that you thought was helpful for you?
1: Well, I think really, you know, if you can do both, you can make yourself more marketable as a therapist. I also think that you have to be really flexible. And I think a lot of times, you know, in speech therapy, when you're working with adults who have brain injuries and strokes, and we're trying to, you know, talk about cognitive flexibility, mental flexibility, I think that if you have the own you know, if you have the opportunity to use it in your own life, I think it's so much easier to actually then understand what skill you're really teaching is how I look at it because I feel like because I had that chance now I look at you know teaching that skill to adults in a very different way than I would otherwise and I think also you know if you find a mentor or someone you know maybe it's your CFY supervisor, you know, which is uh, your internship you do after graduate school, typically for nine months if you're going full-time. If that's someone, you know, you decide you want to keep in touch with or anyone that you come across that you find to be a very nurturing person, I mean, there's certainly still, you know, one old coworker I have. We worked together many years ago, but I still keep in touch with her today because I really respect her in terms of how much knowledge she has. I really... You know, think she's a great person. We have similar personalities. So I think it's really important to make connections in your own field and to seek out people who are like minded and also, you know, encourage you. I think that's really important. And I feel like I'm lucky to have multiple people like that, including other past co workers I have. And that's been extremely helpful to get me to where I'm at now.
0: Yeah, I would agree that, um, and it, because a lot of times we don't have the opportunity to necessarily. Work alongside with other mm-hmm. um, people in our same discipline, especially in the, the field where I'm in, in home early intervention. You know, I might go, mm-hmm. I might have a co visit with um, another therapist, but it's never going to be another OT, um, right? That, that just doesn't ever happen. So it is, it is. I would agree. Nice to have like a team that we work on that there is another OT on the team and multiple mm-hmm. teams that we might be on that we can consult with and just kind of learn from back and forth and, and ask questions or give advice either way. Um, even, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and it's still good to, you know, bounce ideas off of mm-hmm. another OT or, you know, is there, think about it, is there something that I missed? And, you know, they may have another mm-hmm. idea and it is it is nice to have that um, the opportunity. Yeah, and
1: I think it can be hard and isolating, especially when you're in, like you said, if you're going in homes or you're in private practice, you're not around a lot of professionals. Other times, I mean, I think the other thing to consider there is maybe just joining a local organization where you can network with other speech therapists or, like you said, occupational therapists, physical therapists, whatever field you're in. I definitely think it's helpful, and I do think that it can be isolating if you're not in a setting where you have access to many professionals. Um, I definitely think that's another good way to find other people who can encourage you in the right direction and give you other information about the field as well. And I think now, if anything, you know, especially at the beginning when COVID first started, it was isolating because suddenly, you know, we don't have as much social contact with people, let alone other professionals in our field. So. Even now with networking, I think it's always something important to keep in the back of your mind. Like, how can you do that? I think it's important to seek out personal contact
0: with people. Yeah, uh, there were times, honestly, in the pandemic that we did actually more consulting sometimes with other mm-hmm. with other therapists or other that I did with other OTs that, you know, we did on um, through Zoom or whatever, just because mm-hmm. we... We weren't maybe out working as often because we were mostly home doing video therapy and um mm-hmm. so it kind of it kind of lent to an easier way of actually consulting some you know with other OTs too I know um you do some teletherapy. do you want to talk about that at all or do you ever? Sure, I
1: can. Yes, I've been doing teletherapy actually for a while now, pretty much since the pandemic started. And in the past couple of months, I did start my own private practice and I've been seeing children and adults online. I think it can definitely be fun if you make it fun. I mean, I think teletherapy can be challenging in that, honestly, it's not for every child. So I think for younger children, for the population, we're talking about zero to three. I don't think it's very beneficial Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of direct therapy, I think for that model, you can definitely do a lot of parent coaching and, you know, kind of talk the parent through what they can do and give advice that way in terms of, you know, how they can build their speech and language skills. Um, I think for older kids, I think it can definitely be more beneficial, um, especially if they're at the age where they're able to you know, sit in the room by themselves and attend to what you're telling them without mom or dad there. So I find that for the school aged children, it probably is more effective. Um, I think it can be challenging though, because of course, you know, working from home, um, even with children being home, some of them for virtual school, I think you have other challenges like the noise level and things like that. But I think if, you as a speech therapist or whoever the treating therapist is and the other person are both wearing headphones that tends to make it easier because you can kind of block out the noise a little bit better and ideally if each of you have a separate room where you're sitting that's better but you know again I know that's not always practical depending on how much space you have in your home or apartment um, but definitely one of the things I really like about using Zoom for teletherapy and you can do this with a lot of you know the other platforms too, is you can share your screen. So what I do is I'll run Zoom on my laptop and then I'll screen share to my iPad. And sometimes we'll use some of the apps that I've seen on there. So that can be really fun because, um, you know, there are a lot of different, I can actually mention some of the apps, but like Buddy Bear is a really good series. Um, That series I like, especially in working with autistic children. But even if they're not, I just like that it builds comprehension so it's a bear named Buddy Bear, and there WH questions or yes-no questions you can do. So, for example, you can click on who, and you can just work on who, who questions. And then it'll give a whole question, and there'll be a sequence of three pictures that you can choose from. And then it'll tell you if the answer is right or not. So that's one that's really fun. Um, there are some other apps as well. There's one called Word Vault. It's all one word that I really like, too. So that app is really cool because it was designed by two speech therapists. Um, I think they're out in California. But the thing I like about that app is, 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 is that it's extremely comprehensive. It has articulations, so you can work on speech sounds with your child. It has a whole section for language, which covers all kinds of questions and, you know, synonyms, antonyms. That's probably an app that I use very frequently. I would say I use that every week because it just has so much stuff in one app. And I also like that when you're reading stories, either the child's reading it to you or you're reading it to them, you actually have a little email icon at the top to where you can email that same story, let's say to the teacher or parent or to someone else, and they can then practice that with the child for reinforcement. That's really cool.
0: What Uh do you normally use those with?
1: Um, I would say probably... Um, probably about four and up, I would say. Um, I do want to mention, though, there are some other apps I use that would be better for the younger kids. So there's one I like called First Phrases, which I think you can use with younger kids. So what I like about that one is that it'll have a little video of a little animal or, you know, a little person doing something, and then you can have the child repeat the three to four words. But what I like, really like about that app is that at the end of each segment of the video, You can actually have the child record what they're saying so definitely if you're doing it in person that part is more effective but even if you're doing it online you can still the child can still see the video and you can have them repeat the phrase so that one can be really good for building language for younger kids especially or you could use that one with older kids you know if they're at a more basic language level And then there's uh, two other apps that I like also. There's one called Fun with Directions and More Fun with Directions. Those I really don't use for online speech therapy, for teletherapy. But certainly if you're seeing children in person, those are really good um, for building comprehension. So typically we'll tell the child the direction and actually have them follow it. And so they have to do whatever it saying on that screen, and then it'll go on to the next one once they get it right. So those are also really cool apps too.
0: let me see. Um, I wanted to ask you about child language disorders. Um, you said mm-hmm. that's one of the areas that you specialize in. I was wondering if you could mm-hmm. expand on that more specifically. Sure.
1: So before, when we are talking about language, you know, there's the area of receptive language and there's the area of expressive language. So Specifically, if someone is said to have a, a receptive language disorder, that means that the child or the individual has difficulty understanding language. So they may have difficulty answering questions or following directions. Or if we're saying that an individual or a child has an expressive language disorder, that means that they're having trouble using words. They're having trouble expressing themselves using words, you know, at all, maybe, or using words and sentences. And sometimes it can mean that they have trouble with word order or they may have trouble with grammar as well so or sometimes you may hear that a child has a mixed expressive receptive language disorder well that just means they can have tr- they have trouble with both areas and then even with language i forgot to mention before there's a whole area of social skills or you know if you want to give it a more fancy term called pragmatic so A lot of kids can have trouble, especially specifically with autistic children, may have trouble with social skills. So that can mean a whole host of things. But, for example, they may have trouble staying on topic. They may abruptly switch from topic to topic and not really realize that their listener is not following what they're saying. Or they may have trouble reading nonverbal cues of the other person, the conversation, knowing that that person doesn't understand what they're saying. They may have trouble rephrasing something in different words so that their listeners able to understand them. So the cool thing about language is that it covers a lot of different areas. So it's very fascinating because you're never really working on this, the exact same thing with children.
0: Is there anything else that you wanted to let new grads know, or even people that are just newer to working with kids?
1: Yes. I think what's really, really important is to have fun. So I think it's very beneficial to find out what the child likes and run with that. That is how you're going to get them to really like coming to see you as a speech therapist or as any therapist, really, but especially for speech therapy, because if I know a child, for example, one of my kiddos loves dinosaurs. Now he's moved on and he likes something else, but for a while All we would talk about is dinosaurs and he would tell me all these cool names and facts about each one. It was really fun for him. And so it made, you know, speech therapy fun for him. And I think that's something important to ask the parents. And I think especially for the age of children we're talking about with early intervention, zero to three, speech therapy is going to look like we're playing games and having fun. But believe it or not, there are a lot of goals that we're targeting while all that's going on. So I know commonly people can think, well, what are you really doing? Well, we've done a whole evaluation and we have goals we're targeting. But yeah, we do it in a very fun way. It should be play-based therapy and uh, everyone should be having fun. And I think the main thing to keep in mind is we all have a common goal of wanting to help the child. So we have to do it as a team. No one individual can make magic happen, essentially.
0: Yeah, I think one of the benefits of being in the home for us is um, being there in the moment during their mm-hmm. possibly mealtime routine or changing a diaper or whatever um, mm-hmm. thing might be going on and to help them y- show, basically reinforce using the strategies of like you're saying, using the language or a sign or gesture or whatever, or making a choice and um, you know coaching the parent while we're there and then mm-hmm. instead of just us doing it to the side and then telling the parent about it or here's you know actually helping them in the moment and then I think that that can help stick with them longer or there's more of a chance that they might do it the next time they they do that routine. Um I can they- see that because you're actually hands-on in the situation itself Celeste. So and the environment that
1: the child and parent are in day in, day out. So I can see how that's very functional.
0: Yeah, and I think it helps too, because sometimes our ideas don't work. And so mm-hmm. it's a good opportunity to tweak it as needed or try a different thing or um, have some options, basically, if it's not working you know, don't just give up. Let's try another way that we can help them be successful um, sure. and, work, and work towards that final way, that, that, the final um, goal that we want to get to. Mm-hmm.
1: The last thing I really just want to stress is the importance of early intervention. I think early in- intervention is important for many reasons, but one reason is it's important to build those communication skills as soon as you can, if you feel like your child is having trouble in that area, it can really build confidence in children. And you can really see that in their face. And when they're really struggling and when they're really frustrated, it's not only difficult for them, but it's difficult for everyone around them, which can be many different people, including teacher, parents, other siblings, et cetera. So I think overall, I would just like to stress that the sooner you can get your child help, whether that's speech therapy, physical therapy, or occupational therapy, the sooner you can see them making progress and the sooner they can build those really foundational blocks at a young age, versus if you wait till later, um, sometimes it's just harder because you really have to convince kids that they need to go somewhere and get help for something. And that's not always easy. And I think when children are young, you know, like I said, it's a lot of play-based therapy. So it's pretty fun. And, you know, they leave with a sticker, they leave with a toy. I mean, it's, think something they look at really differently at a younger age.
0: Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem like work. It, it's just play. the earlier you can start. Well, thank you, Mira for joining today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy I got to talk to you today. Okay, I wanted to say thank you very much to Mira Dieter for joining me today. It was really nice talking with you. Those of you who want to find out more about Mira and the work that she is doing, you can find links to her information by looking in the notes for today's show in your podcast app or on my website at mymidwesttherapy.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.